0: Now, I don't know with all, with all the restrictions going on how many of you have been away on holiday. If you have been away on holiday, what did you check before you left? I'm sure there are things you checked before you left. Did you check that you've got your phone? Check you've locked the back door. Check that the oven isn't still on. Uh, check you've got petrol in the car. Check you've got the information about where you're staying. Uh, we check the things that matter to us. Now, having said that, uh, some things matter, but we don't check because we can take them for granted. They're just always there. I doubt every morning you check your head is fixed on properly. It just it just is it doesn't need checking. Now having said that, I once took for granted something. It's just always right. It doesn't need checking. I thought, well, of course, my car's got enough oil. It's, it's had a service. The oil should last a year, shouldn't it? And that turned out not to be the case. The uh, oil sump had run dry. And so, again, we're reminded we should check things that matter to us. Do you check you have eternal life? Do you check you safely belong to the Lord Jesus? If it matters to you, you'll check it. If you don't check it, then... Surely that really says it doesn't matter to you. And don't be like me with the oil in my car, just taking it for granted, presuming it must be okay. The Bible tells us to check. And one John was written so we can check and be sure. Would you turn with me to one John chapter five and verse 13? We're going to be in chapter one, but first of all, have a look at chapter five, verse 13 of one John. Because then John tells us why he wrote this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. At the start of August, we heard that one John was written so we can be certain about the truths about Jesus and certain that we personally have eternal life. We also heard that it was a book written, a letter written that is polemic. It is arguing against false teachers and it's pastoral. It's attacking the wolves to protect the sheep. And last time we were in chapter one, verses one to four. This time we're moving forward into verses five to seven. We won't take it all this slowly, but today we're just in verses five to seven. But before I preach those verses to you, I want you to do some Bible study. Uh, I was going to get us all unmuted and get answers from people, but seeing as that didn't go very well in the children's talk this morning, I'll just leave you to look at and think about this. I would like you to do some Bible study for a few minutes before I preach those verses. Have a look at chapter one, verse five through to chapter two, verse two. And. I hope you'll see that the structure is pretty straightforward. You need to first of all, look for a truth about God. It all depends on. Then look for three claims by false teachers. And in each case, what John thinks about those claims and the better alternative he gives. Did you get that? Chapter one, verse five to chapter two, verse two, look for a truth about God. It all depends on. Three claims by false teachers and for each claim what John thinks about them and a better alternative he gives. I'll give you a few minutes. Please have a look through because I want you to see that really it's very straightforward. I don't know if I've given you enough time but have you spotted uh, first of all one truth about God that it all depends on well that's in verse 5 God is light and then we have three claims by false teachers the first one is in verse 6 the false teachers claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness what does John think about that that's straightforward in verse 6 it's a lie And what's his alternative? The better alternative. That's in verse seven. Walk in the light. What's the next claim by false teachers? That's in verse eight. They claim to be without sin. What does John think about that? That's also in verse eight. It's a lie. You're lying to yourself. You deceive yourself. What's the better alternative? Verse nine. Admit your sins to God. What's the next claim by false teachers? Well, that's verse 10. It's very similar. They claim they've not sinned. What does John think about that? You're saying that God's a liar. What's the better alternative? This one's less obvious, but it's in chapter two, verses one and two. The better alternative is strive not to sin. But if you do sin, trust Jesus to deal with it. Well, that was because John has a reputation for not being very structured in his letter, and he is less structured than someone like Paul. But it was so you could see how this all fits together. Having done that, now I'd like us to get into verses five to seven. Let's go through verses five to seven to help us check that we have eternal life. And we have to begin with God is light. Verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. What we believe about God shapes how we live. So back in the past, the Vikings, they believed in gods who were ale swilling warriors. And so the Vikings were ale swilling warriors. Muslims believe God is one supreme, unrelational being on his own to whom we are just servants, to submit. So it's no surprise when a Muslim wife has to walk six feet behind her husband and her husband just treats her as a servant who must just get on and submit. John is going to tell us what the Christian life is like, but he starts here with what God is like, because that must shape it all. And verse five, he tells us, God is light. What does he mean? Well, we've all probably got some sort of idea and we don't have to guess because the Bible is full of talk of light and darkness. And John's writings especially are full of light and darkness imagery. So, first of all, God is light means he is true. He is the revealer of truth. Light reveals Last week, we came home from holiday quite late on, about 10 o'clock at night. And you probably all know what it's like. You get home and it's all dark. So you don't really know what state is the garden in? How are things? Because you've got home late at night. Next morning, the sun comes up and all is revealed. You see how long the grass is and which plants have died and which have grown crazily. The light reveals it all. God is light means it's in God's nature to reveal himself. It's in his nature to make himself known. He doesn't leave us guessing what he's like. The Bible isn't a collection of human ideas and a load of words that are just guesses at what God is like. They're not words where we can never be sure what quite is the truth behind them about God's. The Bible is God revealing himself because he's light. He makes himself known. He doesn't make life a puzzle with clues that are cryptic and leave us clueless. He's a God who loves to make things clear, to make himself known. But light also means goodness. It means righteousness. I'm sure you're familiar with the Bible consistently using light to mean goodness. Darkness to mean evil. And so verse five says, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. It means he has nothing to hide. There's nothing about God that he needs to cover up. Journalists today, they're always uh, looking at politicians lives, prying into them, trying to find a skeleton in the wardrobe. Now, children might find that very odd. (laughs) How do journalists expect to find a skeleton in the wardrobe? What it means is they're trying to find some sort of grubby secret about that person. Some bad thing the politician has done that they've got hidden away, hoping no one will see. But God has no skeletons in the cupboard, no grubby secrets, nothing he needs to hide. He is as good as righteous, as pure, as perfect as he says he is. And that all leads to a third thing that it means that God is light. Light means joy. Now, living in England, I'm sure we've all experienced this. What are our winters like? Well, They can be pretty dark and miserable. The nights are long, the days are short. Uh, the clouds are so thick that sometimes you, well, for days, you don't see the sun and it can feel pretty dark in the daytime. And then spring comes and you get one of those bright mornings. The sky is clear and the sun is shining. And how does it make you feel? What doesn't it cheer you up? Light brings joy. And God being light is a joyful thing. God being light means he's true. Yes, but sometimes people committed to truth sound like religious hard men. But God's truth is joyful truth. He loves to reveal, to make himself known. God's goodness is reason for joy. The one in control has no dark secrets. He doesn't have a dark side to his character. His character is totally consistent. So you can be sure that he keeps his law. That law, which is summarized by love. God is light. He's true. He's good. And that's reason for joy. And that's our God. And so that leads to the second thing this evening. God is light. So walk in the light. We move now into verses six and seven. Walk in the light. I remember once doing some evangelism on the streets and I was talking to a drunkard, a cursing, swearing drunkard. And everything I told him about the gospel, he claimed he knew it already and believed it already. He was this cursing, swearing drunkard. And everything I told him about Jesus dying for sinners and trusting Jesus, he claimed he knew it and he claimed he believed it. And this left me rather puzzled. What do I make of this man? What would John say about it? Have a look at verse six to see the answer. What would John say about that man? It's very straightforward. Liar. That's what he'd say about him. It's a lie. It's a lie that you claim that you believe all of this truth if your life doesn't match it. Verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. That's because Christianity is fellowship with God. Notice how verse six starts. It takes it as obvious. We are all about fellowship with God. Christianity is all about fellowship with God. Being a Christian can be put as having fellowship with God. Being a Christian isn't just a human decision made by us. It is that, but it isn't just that. It's not just being active in the church and fitting in. It's not just identifying with Christianity as your label. Children and teens, it's easy for you to have Christianity as your roots, your family, your background, your identity. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian is something much more than that. It's having fellowship with God. It's having God active in your life. So do you know God? Do you seek fellowship with God? Do you want to spend time with God as you read the Bible and pray as you worship with the church? Do you want to meet with God? Is that what your aim is? Because that is really at the heart and essence of what living Christianity is. And that is incompatible with walking in the darkness. Verse six. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You can't have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness. Now uh, seeing as that is uh, that's a that's a very uh, that's a truth we've all got to get hold of well we'd better be clear what is walking in the darkness. What is it to walk in the darkness? Well think about walking. Walking that means something we keep going in. Walking means the direction your life is heading in. Walking is something continued and persisted in. John isn't describing someone falling for a sin. He isn't describing someone failing because they're weak. He's describing someone keeping going in that sin. And not turning back from it, not turning away from it. Walking in darkness. Now, we all have some idea, don't we, what darkness means? We've already heard a bit about what darkness means. Uh, We all have some idea that it means sin. So, for example, I'll read you from Ephesians five, just to give you one example of the many where the Bible uses darkness to mean sin. Ephesians five, verse eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Notice that goodness, righteousness and truth. God is good and he is true because he's light. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Darkness is sin. It's put clearly so many times in the Bible. But we can say something a bit more about darkness from one John. Just have a look for a moment at chapter two, verse eight and see what does that tell you is passing away. Chapter two, verse eight. I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing. And the true light is already shining. What's passing away? The darkness. Then look at chapter two, verse 17. And what does that say is passing away? Chapter two, verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. The darkness is passing, the world is passing and its desires. Put the two together and you find walking in darkness is being controlled by the desires of the world. And if you want to know what the desires of the world are, look at verse 16. It tells us they're the cravings of sinful man. They're the lusts of our eyes. They're the boasting of what you have and who you are. And walking in darkness is being controlled by those sorts of desires. It's those sorts of desires describe your life. They are the tendency of your life. If that characterizes your life, the lust of the eyes, the cravings of sinful man, the boasting of who you are and what you have, the sorts of things the world desire, if they are what you desire, if they control you and they dominate your life and they describe you, you're walking in darkness. And that means you do not have fellowship with God. You don't know him. Yes, yes, of course, God saves sinners. Yes, of course, God chooses and loves sinners, but he doesn't leave them as sinners. That life of darkness is incompatible with knowing the God who is light. Think of it this way. Imagine two rooms. They're right next to each other. There's just a wall between them. One room has the light on and it's in the light. The other room has the light off and it's in the darkness. Can you picture the two rooms? Imagine it's midnight. One room is totally dark. The other room is full of light. Now, imagine there's a door between the two rooms and you open that door. What happens when you open the door between the two rooms? Does the darkness flood into stream into the light room? No, of course not. Does the light stop at a line across the doorway? And you've got one room in light and the other in darkness and the light just stops at a line across the open doorway. No, of course not. You know, don't you? Light from the light room will flood into the dark room and will light it up. And when sinners in all their darkness come into fellowship with God, his light floods into their lives. His light will dispel their darkness and flood into all those dark corners of our lives. And so it's obvious you cannot know God and just carry on walking in that way of darkness. And so we must walk in the light. We move into verse seven. And notice the wording of verse seven. Can you see something unusual about the wording of verse seven? Verse five has said God is light. How does verse 7 say something a little bit different? Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Did you see the difference? Verse 5, God is light. Verse 7, God is in the light. Why is God in the light? Well, it's obvious because he is light. Because he is light, he's always in the light. It's a statement about God being totally consistent Because he is light. He's always in the light. His character is light. So all about him is light. It's telling us God is totally consistent with himself. His character leads to his principles and his principles lead to his actions. And there is never any break between those, never any clash between those. He never acts in a way that's out of line with his principles and his principles are never out of line with his character. He's totally consistent. And so when verse seven says to us that we're to walk in the light as he is in the light, it's saying we must be consistent people. There must be no show about us. There must be nothing hypocritical. There must be nothing false about us. Yes, we can fail. Yes, we can have weaknesses, but we cannot have pretence. We cannot have empty show. If we have, we're not walking in the light. We're still in the dark. Children, I wonder if your school has a motto. I don't know if schools have mottos so much now. I don't know. Or slogans. I don't know what they have or mission statements. Well, when I went to school, the school had a motto. Its motto was "Essequam quam videre. That's Latin. I don't know any Latin. And I didn't take any notice of the motto. I just thought it's usual school rubbish. I went to a very ordinary comprehensive school, but it pretended to be a bit posh. So I thought that's typical of this school, Latin motto, pretending to be posh. And I was told the motto means to be, not to seem. I thought that's typical of this school. What a silly motto. What does that mean? To be, not to seem. But I now reckon that's a really good motto to be, not to seem. I reckon that should be the Christian's motto to be, not to seem, to be holy, not just to seem holy. To be loving, not just to seem loving. To be enthusiastic for God, not just to seem enthusiastic for God. This is what it means to walk in the light. Consistency, sincerity. And it means more than that. To walk in the light means God's light lights up our lives. God's light lights up our lives so we see things the way God sees them. So we value what God values. So we love what God loves. So we hate what God hates. So we don't excuse sin. No, we, we name it the way God names it and we turn from it. So do you see if if you have fellowship with God, well, you must walk in the light because fellowship with God is walking in the light because he is light. It's it's all obvious, really. So we've heard God is light. And then it must follow from that that we must walk in the light. And then thirdly, we have if we walk in the light. Verse seven tells us two things that follow. If we walk in the light, what follows from that? Verse seven tells us two things. The first is, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with each other. At St. James's Church, I've made up the name and I'm making up this story. Most people are friendly. The people get on well with each other. There's a friendly feel about the place. Now, one of the members, he's had an affair and just excused it and just brushed it aside and won't acknowledge it. But but everyone turns a blind eye to that. They all get on well. Uh, Don't rock the boat. Don't don't do anything that might disrupt the friendliness. And then St. James's church gets a new minister and he's not willing to turn a blind eye to that unrepented sin. He wants to deal with it and take action to encourage repentance. And he's told, leave it alone. You'll cause division. You'll break our fellowship. But, do you know, St. James's Church wasn't really having fellowship. Now, all that friendliness, if unrepented sin is ignored, isn't fellowship. It's just clubbiness. It's just being a club. If people are not walking in the light, however well they get on with each other, it's not Christian fellowship. Because Christian fellowship is people together walking in God's light. Well, to put it more positively, when people have the same delight in God, desire for God, reverence for God, urgency to make Jesus known, revulsion at sin, the same humble character that can be described as the fruit of the spirits. When people have that, well, that brings them into unity. That gets them working together with the same purpose. That gives joyful fellowship. There's the first thing that follows from walking in the light. Fellowship together, the joy of real Christian unity. Here's the second thing that follows. Verse seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There's the second thing that follows. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Now, do notice that walking in the light doesn't mean never sinning. The person who walks in the light still needs purifying from sin. So it doesn't mean never sinning. I I hope I've already made that clear. It's that consistent walking and turning whenever you do fall, turning back to God. But if you're someone who walks in the light, when you do sometimes fall for sin. Do you ever find yourself thinking this? I do. I think. I need to pray about that, but not now. I, I don't feel like I can pray now. Look at the way I've just sinned. I can't pray now. I can pray later, but not now. Well, isn't that silly? The passing of time doesn't purify from sin. No, it's not as if waiting will purify me from sin. No, the blood of Jesus purifies from sin and does now. Do you ever, when you've fallen for sin, think, have I mourned enough for it? Have I prayed enough over it? Oh, we should mourn over our sins. We should pray over them. But we should also remember this, the quality of our prayers and the depth of our mourning. They don't purify from sin. No, the blood of Jesus purifies and purifies from all sin. Don't you just love that little word all. You see it there in verse seven, how I rely on that word all. It doesn't leave a single stain. For us to wash away ourselves, it leaves it all purified. I don't know if it's still the case, but when I was a child watching children's TV, it seemed that so many of the adverts were for Ariel or Persil washing powders. And they were all these women. It was always women, actually. Maybe that's changed now, but it was always women showing these white sheets and how the stain had been completely removed by Ariel or Persil. Completely removed. That's, that's verse seven. The stain of sin completely removed. Not a single blot on our record. I love this verse. Do you ever feel unclean? I do. But verse seven tells me and it tells you the blood of Jesus purifies, washes it away completely. But do remember, It takes the blood to purify. It's not purified without the blood. What does that mean? The blood? Well, to tell that, go back, back, back to a garden called Gethsemane. And there on a cold night, despite the cold, see a man who, although he's the one who created everything, he's in agony. He's in a terrible state, so terrible that the sweat rolls off him like drops of blood. And then follow that same man to a courtyard and a soldier's courtyard. And there see him having his back shredded by the lash as the Roman soldiers lash into him and the blood pours off his back. And then follow that same man to an execution ground. And there the ground stinks with blood. Blood that has run down his face from a crown of thorns. Blood that has dripped from his hands and feet. Blood that's poured from the side of that dead corpse you see suspended there. He's the son of God. And it it took all of that to purify your sin. Well, surely, surely we can never mess around with sin, can we? We can never be careless about it and just continue in it. If we believe the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, no less, purifies from all sin. God is light. So walk in the light. And if we walk in the light, these two things follow fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus purifies. But is there something that surprises you a bit about that? Is there something, if you know the gospel well, that surprises you about verse seven? You might think this, but it says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. You might think. I thought we believed in justification by faith alone. We're not forgiven and justified because we're walking in the light. Well, we're not forgiven because we've done a good job of following Jesus, are we? I thought it's all about trusting Jesus. I thought it's all about faith alone. Well, the answer to that is remember the purpose of this letter. Do you remember? If you don't have a look back again at chapter five, verse 13. The letter is not about how to get eternal life. The letter is about how to tell if you have got eternal life. One John is not to tell us how to be saved. It's to tell us if we are saved. It's about do you have eternal life? It's about do you have real faith? And that faith isn't just a human decision. That faith isn't just an agreement in your mind. That faith is turning from our self-confidence and clinging to Christ. And that takes the work of God, the spirit in the heart. That takes what one John calls being born of God. And if you have that, if you have that work of God, that's at the root of real faith. If you have that clinging to Christ, that's at the heart of real faith. Well, then you will walk in the light. You see, John isn't saying this is the way to get forgiven, walk in the light. He's saying this really is the sign that you are forgiven. This is the sign that you are born again and have real faith, that you walk in the light. Because if you have that work of God that's at the root of real faith, if you have that clinging to Christ that's at the heart of real faith, Oh, well, it must be that God's light will dispel your darkness. It must be that God's light will attract you to him away from your sin and to him. Just as surely as the light attracts a moth. God's light will shine the path for you and you will walk the path his light shines. And so the question for us all, this is where all of this evening was leading. This is where it's all heading to. Here's the question for us all. Do you have that evidence that you are born of God? Do you have that evidence that you have eternal life?